We all love a good rags to riches story, don't we? And this time of the year, one of the best rags to riches stories I think to look at is the story of Charles Dickens. You remember Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's a popular show. We go see it. A lot of people read it. Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, just a miserly old humbug who doesn't want anything to do with Christmas. And then he's escorted on this amazing adventure where he gets to see Christmas past, present, and future. And after all of that, he's transformed. He's this new guy. He's generous. He's loving. He's, he's all these things. And he takes care of Bob Cratchit and his family and especially Tiny Tim, right? Well, the story of Charles Dickens is this rags-to-riches story. It really is an incredible story. Charles Dickens was born in Portsmouth, Portsmouth, England. And he was born to a middle-class family there, and he grew up, and, and his family, they, they started off middle-class, but they soon hit financial troubles, and they got into all kinds of financial uh, problems. And so his father, John Dickens, he was thrown into the debtor's prison. And in those days, if the father was put in the debtor's prison, then all the family had to go there as well. So Charles and his seven brothers and sisters, along with his mom, was also put in the debtor's prison when Charles was 12 years old. And Charles, he was a fantastic student. He loved, he loved school, loved learning. He was a voracious reader. But when he was put in the debtor's prison, he couldn't go to school anymore. Right, And he had to sell. He had this massive book collection, even at the age of 12, because he loved reading. But he was forced to pawn off all of his books to help pay down some of his dad's debt. And at 12 years old, Charles was put and forced to work in a shoe factory to help earn some money to pay down his father's debt. The shoe factory was rat-infested. It was brutal conditions. He had to work six days a week, 10 hours a day, and he earned about 30 cents for the week. And after going through all that, he said, these conditions are terrible. This is awful. Nobody should have to work like this. And it really informed his writing as, as he grew older. And when he was 31 years old, he wrote A Christmas Carol. And it, he, it was released on December 19th, and it was soon sold out by Christmas Eve. But in the years following, in the very next year, it has never been out of print since because they've just printed it and printed it and kept producing it. And it's been just a smashing success as people today continue to, to read and to perform this, this story. And so that's a little bit of the story behind Dickens. And we all love a good rags to riches story, don't we? And I think it's for that reason that perhaps the person in the Christmas story as we read the account of Christmas that we most want to be like is Herod. And I know you're thinking, oh no, not, not Herod. Well, let me show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're continuing our Christmas series, No Room in My Inn. In this Christmas season, we're seeing that, hey, the only way to really have room for Jesus is to get rid of everything else. Because this king comes and he wants it all. He doesn't want just a little bit. He wants everything. And anything less, that's what a relationship costs. Anything less is just a contract. Jesus came for it all. And so in this story, as we read this, this section of the Christmas story, we see these Gentile magi who are going to travel a great distance to see this king of the Jews. And to see this king of the Jews, they first have to stop and see the king of the Jews. 
And we all know there isn't room for two kings in any kingdom. Let's go ahead and read it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So wise men from the east, they come. Why would they come? They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're, they're pagans. They, they're from a far-off land, a far-off place. They're, they're distant. It's a, it's a far-off nation, a, a far-off customs. They, they have a far-off religion. They, they, they are of a different ethnicity. Why would they come to worship this king of the Jews? He's not their king. He's some kind of distant king, or so it would seem. So to fully appreciate this story, you have to understand that the primary audience of Matthew's gospel are Jewish people. Matthew is going to spend a lot of time appealing to the Old Testament, proving to these Jewish people that Jesus is the Davidic king, that he's the rightful heir to the throne. And the whole gospel is, is about the program and purpose of this Davidic king, the promised Jewish Messiah, Jesus. He's come. And so this gospel is designed to appeal to the Jews to wake them up to respond to the message of Jesus, that he is their Messiah. And that's part of what makes this story, this account, so striking, so amazing, so gripping. Because as we read any narrative, any story, we often lose ourselves in the story, right? That's, that's what makes narratives so captivating, is because you can read a narrative and then you find yourself in the story. You identify with the characters and you begin to say to yourself, you know, that's what life is like. I think the same way. You know, if, if that were me, I think I'd have done it the same way. Or you look at the characters and you say, I'm, I'm most like him. I'm most like her. That's the power of a narrative. That's why scripture's full, 70% narrative. And as we read this section of the Christmas story, or we read the Christmas story in general, we can often imagine ourselves as the shepherds, or maybe Joseph or Mary, 
oftentimes we like to pick the wise men, you know. They're, we picture these guys coming with their long robes and they're all bedazzled and they're just looking so fancy as they come riding on these camels that just kind of sway back and forth with the beat of the music and they're loaded down with all these treasures. We can find ourselves in the wise men. We can, we can identify with these guys going on some kind of adventure. But Matthew, he's primarily writing to a Jewish audience. And no Jew wants to find themselves identified with a Gentile. Okay? They, 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 this is the la- these are the last people that they want to identify with, that they want to learn from. So they don't have the same response that we have when we read the Christmas story. When Matthew is appealing to them, hey, you need to worship like these Gentiles worship. They're thinking, oh, no. Don't, don't, don't put these Gentiles in front of us. We don't really know a lot about the Magi, you know. Uh, most likely they traveled from Persia, ancient Babylon. We don't, we don't know for, sure, for certain. Um, but we do know that Persian Magi were leading figures in society. They, they were wise men. They were astrologers. They studied the night sky and sought meaning from the stars and that kind of thing, and uh, they were also very religious, very respected. In fact, these Persian magi, they likely would have been exposed to the Hebrew scriptures and to prophecy. As a result of the Babylonian captivity of the, of the Jews during the exile to Babylon, uh, Jewish learning centers were set up in Babylon. So it's likely that these guys perhaps were exposed to the prophecy and the prediction of a Jewish coming king, a coming Messiah. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, it says that the king of Babylon put Daniel in charge of the wise men. So that was some 600 years earlier, but for perhaps the sense of anticipation has been passed down through the generations because Daniel did prophesy about a coming Messiah, a coming Messiah who would die. And one of the things that these wise men brings, one of the gifts that they brought is the gift of myrrh. And myrrh is a burial spice. Who brings a burial spice to a toddler king? Unless you know that perhaps this toddler king would die. So we, we, we don't know a lot about the Magi, but we do know that they made a long trek. If they came from Persia, it was over 900 miles. Some suggest China, and then that's even way more. But over 900 miles, these guys come to Israel to worship this toddler king. And we sing the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, but we don't really know how many wise men there were. In the West, in our tradition, we say three. Three gifts, three wise men makes sense to us. If you're from the East, the Eastern part of our world, then you don't think three, you think 12. 12 disciples, 12 wise men makes sense to them. We don't really know how many wise men there were. We just know there's more than one. And when they traveled, this was not some kind of like backpack adventure, you know, let me grab some supplies, we're just going to go trekking across the country here till we get there, till we can see this king. It's not just three guys, okay? These three guys are dignitaries, they're respected, they're not coming alone. They're going to form a whole caravan of people, all right? They're going to have attendants, they're going to have cooks, they're going to have guards, all making this journey together. So when they arrive in Israel, this is quite a scene. Because it's not just three guys or a couple of guys, not even 12. It's probably at least in the neighborhood of 20 people showing up on camels or donkeys or whatever in search of a king, a king who has been born. See, most of what we know about the wise men 
It's informed speculation. We don't, we don't get a lot of detail here in this narrative. It's informed speculation. But what we do know is that they followed a star. And sometimes we picture this huge, spectacular star that just lights up the sky and is gigantic. And everybody's like, whoa, look at that star. Probably not the case. These guys are astrologers. They've studied the night sky. There's a certain star that they're following. And they're following that star. If it was so big and so huge, and, and just then everybody would have popped and joined the caravan. Because they would have wondered, hey, what, what's, what's up with this star? I want, to, I want to see where these guys are going. They're going to check out the star. Let's, let's go check out the star. Let's go with them. Now, it was likely just a normal star. But these guys had studied, and they, were, they saw something in this. And they knew that this was a message of God. And so they're following it. God was sending his son for all people. And then they're following it to find out. Perhaps they heard the, the prophecy that a star will come out of Jacob, that a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so they follow this star. And it's strange, isn't it, that the good news of this Jewish king was recognized by foreigners, pagans, Gentiles. It's strange, isn't it, that the message wasn't heard by the priests. The message wasn't recognized by the religious leaders or the members of the Sanhedrin. It's strange, too, isn't it, that the messenger to these foreign wise men was not a prophet, not even a person at all. The message was given by a star, a star that hung with many other stars in the night sky. But you see, good news has to get out. And so God will use all creation to tell of the goodness of Jesus. And so these wise men follow the star to Jerusalem expecting to find this toddler king there. Instead, they show up and they find another king. They find the king of the Jews. His name's Herod. And Herod, Herod has his own rags-to-riches story. We, we like Herod, right? I mean, if you just knew his story and you didn't know all the rest, this is the guy you want to be in the Christmas story. He's not Roman. He's not Jewish. He doesn't have any kind of claim to the throne at all. But he's a shrewd politician. He makes good connections. He becomes friends with Mark Antony. And Mark Antony is probably his leading connection. And so because of this, he's able to appeal to the Romans and say, hey, can you, can you put me in charge? Can you make me king over Israel? And if you do that, I will tax them and I will send money your way. And it'll be good. And so Rome agrees, and they make Herod, they install Herod to be king of the Jews. And Herod now is king of the Jews. He's not a Jew, and he's not Roman. And so he has this very tight rope that he's got to walk because he has to appease the Romans, and at the same time, he has to placate the Jews. And so he does this by taxing the Jews so that he can send money off to Rome. And at the same time, he's allowing the Israelites to lead in the religious services, to lead in the temple, to be the religious leaders. And so he's kind of walking both sides of the fence trying to make everybody happy. And if you're looking for a good economic king, if that's what you want out of a king, someone who's going to make your economy thrive, then Herod's your guy. Because... The economy was booming. Israel was doing quite well. And so people got along. It's not that they loved Herod, but hey, we can live with Herod. He's not that great of a guy. He's not that nice of a guy. Yeah, he's got his problems. But 
the economy's doing well. We like Herod. We can live with Herod. And so this was Herod's rule. This is how he was going. And if anyone wanted to take Herod's crown, watch out, because he was king. And he wasn't letting anybody have his crown. Okay, he heard rumors that uh, one of his nephews would try to get the crown. So he drowned him. He heard that his wife was interested in becoming king. So he killed her. He heard that several of his sons might be interested in trying to become king, so he killed them. In fact, the Roman Caesar Augustus, he said that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. This is the kind of man Herod was. Yeah, he was a shrewd politician, and he led reasonably well, but he was also delusional. He was sick. And now these Gentile wise men show up, and they ask the question, where is the one born king of the Jews? Do you see what they just did to him? He's been installed king of the Jews. And they're asking, where is the rightful heir to the throne? See, now you know why Herod's so upset. Because there is a rival to his throne, and he doesn't want to give up his crown. He doesn't want to give up his kingdom. And he's not the only one upset. says, all Jerusalem is upset with him. Now, we tend to think of Jerusalem as this holy city, right? Where everyone, they just go around reading their Old Testaments all day and just very religious people. And there's some truth to that. But these were also very political, calculating people. Yeah, they had this religious contract, but they're, they're very political, very calculating. And so all of Jerusalem is upset. Why? Because they backed Herod. They don't like Rome. They don't like Herod. But they've learned to live with Rome. They, they, they don't like Herod, but hey, they got a system that works. They're allowed to, to lead in the areas they want. These people, they want to hold on to their power too. See, they got crowns too. They got their own kingdom. And they want to keep What's theirs? Because if there comes a new administration, if there's a new king, would they have the same power? Would things go as well? Who knows? But they have the power now. They have their kingdom now. They don't, they don't want to give that up. You see, thinking hasn't changed a whole lot, has it? It's still all about us, isn't it? What we think, how we feel, what our preferences are, that's what really matters. So we're in control of our own destiny. We want to take control of our decisions and claim our future. Because it can be anything we want it to be. As long as it's ours. As long as we're in control. We can have our own rags to riches story. We can, we can go to any bookstore, any, any library. You can find all kinds of podcasts that will tell you that you're the most important person in your world. And if you want a good rags to riches story, if you want success, here's the steps you've got to take. And then you can accomplish your dreams. You can be anything you want to be. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you have to do to get ahead. Here's what you need to do to be a success. Here's how you can have your throne, how you can have your crown, how you can be in charge of your kingdom. See, we read this part of the Christmas story, and we want to find ourselves in the wise men, because we like adventure. We like to worship. But my fear is, oftentimes, we can live more like Herod. 
we have our thrones, our ideas of the way things ought to be, things, the way things ought to go. We look for what's comfortable for us, what we enjoy, what we like, what's good for us. And here comes Jesus. And he's trying to take away, he's calling us to something different. He's trying to take away what's ours. But the fact is, Jesus hadn't come for what's ours. He came for what's his. And there's only room for one king. There's only room for one king. And when Jesus comes to reclaim what's his, he gives a better life. Because he's a better king than we are. He rules better than we do. And so it is good news of great joy for all people if you let him on the throne of your life. But if he is king, then you are subject to him. And do you really want that? Do you really want, see, sometimes we say we do, but we'd really just rather sit on the throne ourselves so that we can make decisions and we can do things the way we want to do them. Imagine this scene with me. The Magi show up. They're loaded down with these expensive, extravagant gifts, gifts fit for a king. And they show up to Herod and they tell him, hey, we have to worship. We have to find the one who has been born king. We have these gifts for him. We need to present them to him. And you're Herod. Can you imagine how that felt? Oh, man, he, he immediately calls the chief priests, the religious leaders together, the teachers of the law, because he has got to find out where is this rival to the throne? Where, where is this king that they're going to try to worship? Where, where is he? they got to find him. And the amazing thing is, the startling thing, the gripping thing, these religious leaders, they know. They don't hesitate. They know. They know the prophecy. They tell him, oh yeah, the Messiah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They quote scripture to him. They quote Micah 5.2. They know it. They know. The religious leaders know where Jesus will be born. It's only six miles from where they are. But they never go. Some suggest that all Jerusalem is disturbed because Herod is disturbed. They say, hey, Herod's crazy. If Herod's upset, everybody's upset. There may be some truth to that, but it's more than that. The leaders in Jerusalem, they're worried about their thrones too. They're worried about their power too. Don't you see it? They know where the Christ child, their long-awaited, promised Messiah was to be born. And yet the ones who go to worship this king are not from Palestine, they're from Persia. It's uncircumcised Gentiles who go, not the circumcised Jews. No, they, they stay home. They're plotting how to keep their crowns. It's those who haven't memorized their Bible verses who go. Those who have, those who know the scriptures, those who can quote the prophecy, oh, they stay home where it's comfortable, where it's nice. The ones who go to service each week, the ones who worship and sing songs and read the scriptures, oh, they don't go. No, no, they, they stay home. They won't go six miles. Those who don't go to worship services, oh, they, they travel over 900 miles 
loaded down with gifts to come to worship this, this king. The distant Gentile magi, they load up. They go on a hard journey, a difficult journey in those days with the caravan of people to go and worship this king, the king of the Jews. He's not even their king, right? But the Jewish leaders, the religious people, oh, they stay home. They, they know the scriptures. They, they, they go to worship services. They quote the scripture to Herod. Prophecy is being fulfilled, they say. The birth of the long-awaited promised king, it's come. Yeah, this is who they're going to see. He's only six miles down the road. But they can't trouble themselves to get off their throne and make a six-mile trip. The distant Gentile magi, oh yeah, 900 miles, no big deal. Let's form a caravan. Let's get the most precious, extravagant gifts we can possibly bring. Let's go. Let's worship this king, the one born king. You know, we'd like to find ourselves in the wise men, but oftentimes we can act a whole lot more like Herod. We can know the scriptures. Oh, we can quote the scriptures that tell us that Jesus has called us to be the light of the world, that he's told us to go to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything he's commanded us. We can quote it, but do we ever get up out of the comfort of our own home to go and actually teach people everything he's taught you. Oh, we go to worship services, and we worship. But do we go to our community, and do we invite them into our homes? Do we make our homes ministry centers where, where we share the good news of Jesus, where we walk across the street and get to know our neighbors? Or are we more like Herod? Or we're just really after our own crown. See, we, we like to set our schedules. We, we like to set our agendas. We, we schedule in our Jesus time. We, we fit him in. Because after all, he is subject to us. We are king. And there's not room for two kings in a kingdom. Everybody knows that. Matthew is trying to get unbelieving Israel to have the same response to Jesus as the Gentile Magi. And no self-respecting Jew wants to be associated with, wants to learn from a Gentile. And here today, our problem is, we think we're the Magi, but maybe we act more like Herod. How does that happen? Well, it happens when church is just a place you go. And it's not who you are. It happens when you are king. When you make decisions by what seems best to you. You're your own king. See, we can learn a lot from these magi, these distant, foreign, pagan people. They meet with Herod. And they follow the star to the place where the child was, to the house where the child was. It's, it's that verse that tells us that our nativity scenes are all messed up in our house, you know. Because Jesus is a child now when they find him. He's, he's in a house. He's not, he's not in that barn, in that manger anymore. He's in a house. In fact, this, this year, as Emma was kind of setting up our nativity scene, I told her, hey, you got to move the wise men just away, just a little bit. 
So now they're, they're traveling like six inches in two years, but, you know. I got to go out, I got to buy like 20 more figurines and then move them to the kitchen. And then it maybe, maybe it'll be a little more accurate. But, but the Magi come and they worship. And that word worship there is, is worship as you would a deity. Worship this Jewish king as if he is God. See, that's what they do. They worship Jesus as God. They're not, really paying, they're not merely like paying their respects to a foreign dignitary. They're not just coming by to say, oh, you know, you're the new king of Israel. This is great. Um, you know, we hope he grows up to be a great king. No, no. They come to worship him like he's God because they, they recognize something. There's this sense of awe. They bow down. They offer the best they have. And these gifts that they give, Joseph, he probably would have had to use those gifts in order to finance his trip to, to Egypt as he had to escape from Herod and then finance his trip back home. And after their long-awaited journey had come to an end and they had beheld this king, this only rightful king, this Jewish Messiah, this one who is king of kings and lord of lords, is good news for all people. I, I imagine that they couldn't sleep that night. They just looked at one another and they recounted the story of what it was like to be in the presence of this king, to worship this king, to offer their gifts to this toddler king. And so the question comes to us, how can Jesus really be king of our lives? How do we get off our thrones and allow him and him alone to be king? Because we all know there's not room for two kings in any kingdom. Number one, you've got to be a continual worshiper. I mean, these guys, they come to worship. They, they will travel over 900 miles. They'll load up. They'll form a kid. They'll do whatever it takes to worship this king. I mean, if you want Jesus to be king, you've got, you got to worship him. You worship by studying his word, by gathering together, by praying, by making your home a ministry center, by singing. And, so we, and you don't let a day go by where the king isn't worshipped, where you haven't spent time with the king beholding his majesty, allowing his word to instruct and challenge, encourage, correct. And then number two, if Jesus is your king, you'll do what he's called you to do. You will obey the king. He's called you to make disciples, who they themselves are able to make disciples. Chair four is not some kind of special chair that, oh man, only the really expert Christians make it all the way over to chair four. No, no, that's, that's the normal chair for any believer. I mean, that, that, that's the purpose of our salvation. That, that's what we're called to. He's called us to engage lost people as an ambassador. He's called us to go make disciples. The king has sent you. And if you don't go, maybe he's not your king. Because when the king sends you, you go. That, that's, what, that's how you respond to a king. And I know it may sound scary. Like, Jesus is calling me to go make disciples? To just go engage the world and to teach them everything that he's commanded me? Yeah, that's, that's what he's called you to do. You say, I don't know if I can do that. Know this, Jesus hasn't called you to do hard things alone. He gives this promise that he will be with you. This, this king doesn't send you out alone as an orphan. This king says, I will go with you. 
I will be with you. But here's the mission I've given you. If you don't go, maybe he's not your king. The first readers of Matthew's gospel were Jews. They would have read Matthew chapter 2 thinking that, man, there's nothing these magi could teach us. We read Matthew chapter 2 and we think, I'm nothing like Herod. The scary thing is maybe we both are wrong. Oh, we call him King Jesus. We've memorized the verses. We go to worship services. We know what the Bible says. But have we traveled six miles or even walked across the street to let people know this good news of great joy? Because the king has sent us. If not, maybe we don't have room for another king. You know, in Revelation, there's this scene where the church is gathered with Jesus and The church is there worshiping Jesus, and they're just overwhelmed by the greatness and the majesty of who Jesus is, and they can't get past his grace and his mercy and just how magnificent he is. And so the church falls down to their knees, and as they fall down to their knees and they worship Jesus, they have crowns, they're wearing crowns, and they take their crowns off, and they throw them at the feet of Jesus. This is what the church does with their crowns. We know what Herod did with his crown. And so the question comes to us, what will you do with yours? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good king. God, that you rule better than we do. That your reign is superior to ours. So God, forgive us When we try to hold on to our own crown, take charge of our own kingdom, do things our way, ignore what you've commanded us to do in the scriptures, these good commands, these righteous commands, these commands that give the best life, because somehow we're delusional enough like Herod to think that we know better. God, we've been sent by a good king to be an ambassador May we go well. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.